0: Mighty the Mercian Hard was his hand play Sparing not any doomed to the death Five young kings put asleep by the sword stroke Seven strong earls of the army of Anlaf fell on the warfield. In this podcast we're searching for a place that's become lost in time The location of a battle that was fought over a thousand years ago. The Gaels and the Picts and the Britons in the north join forces. The southern Angles have grown in size and power. Those two forces meet in a ferocious combat. A bloody fight, long remembered for its gruesome cruelty. It became known as the Great War. And the repercussions of that battle are still reverberating across the British Isles to this day. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me, and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles.
1: Hi, Neil. Last week we travelled with you to the heart of modern Winchester to track down the bones of Alfred the Great, one of the most influential and charismatic kings ever to govern in these isles. Where are we now?
0: Okay, I'll be honest with you, Paul. That's the tricky bit about today's episode. Uh, This is very much a podcast about places. So here we hit what you might call an existential crisis because this week's podcast is about a pivotal event in the history of these isles. And the trouble is, no one knows anymore where it took place. It's the Battle of Brunenburg. Right, the obvious question is, why is the Battle of Brunanborough included in my 100 places when we don't know where it took place? Well, here's the truth. Something that I've just had to accept. No story of these isles would be complete without an account of what happened that day in AD 937 in the place they called Brunanborough. The name of the place is Brunnenburg and it relates specifically to an apocalyptic battle uh, that was fought in the year 937 AD, so more than a thousand years ago. Now, it's called Brunenborough. Everyone refers to it as Brunenborough, which is a place, obviously. Just the mere inclusion of the ending, borough, suggests a fortified place of the sort that... King Alfred the Great was in the habit of dotting around the country so that he could keep an eye on those pesky Vikings but and here's where a kind of an existential crisis comes in we don't know where Brunnenburg is or was we know a terrible battle was fought across a dreadful blood soaked day in 937 but the location of Brunnenburg is lost and as is the case with other places just think Camelot for example King Arthur's sainted palace different places or different people place Camelot in different locations according to their interpretation of of the events and just their their passions sometimes they insist some people have it in Cornwall, some people have it in Wales, some people even have it in Scotland, in Stirling where I am, has a claim on, on Camelot Likewise, Brunenborough is one of these places that many, many different people over the years have put it in many, many different places. So, for example, some have it in Axminster, in Devon. There's a a site close by that to some people fits the bill. Barnsdale in South Yorkshire. There's another place called Brinsworth, which is close by Rotherham. Burnley in Lancashire is on the River Brune and that's popular with some people Burns' work in Lockerbie which is in Dumfries and Galloway in the southwest of Scotland Burns' work is the, is the name of the hamlet that's there to this day and it sounds a bit like Bruna's work which is the way in which a historian called Simeon of Durham referred to the battle he placed it at Bruna's work and so because there's a Burns' work outside Lockerbie in Scotland some people put it there But there's other places besides. All sorts of people have put it in all sorts of different places. There isn't even any agreement on whether it's in the east or the west of the country, nothing. It's quite fascinating. And it's made all the more fascinating because the battle was extraordinary and not just in its violence, but in its consequences.
1: It's not a mythical battle though, is it? We know it took place.
0: Absolutely, the chronicles have it Poems were written about it People remembered it ever after They called it the Great War How does that resonate? You know, we talk about the the war between 1914 and 1918 The First World War, that gets called the Great War Well, a thousand years before that Almost immediately in its aftermath People were referring to Brunenburg As the Great War Which, in, in a violent time Clearly what happened that day wherever it happened struck people as extraordinary. You know, these were places people used to violent battles being fought with swords and axes and, and the rest of it. But by the standards of the day, it was extraordinary and unforgettable. But the point is that Brunenborough defined the destinies of the countries of the Long Island of Britain. We take it for granted, do we not, that there's a kingdom in the north Scotland and a kingdom in the in the south which is England one smaller one larger you, you know we just we just take that as red as though it was inevitable as though it would always have been like that but it was Brunnenburg 937 AD that set that in stone if you like wow. it made it inevitable that after 937 there would be a small poorer kingdom in the north. And a larger, richer kingdom in the south. Because, you know, you could quite easily have had the case that the whole place would have been pulled together as one.
1: Including Ireland and Wales?
0: Well, Ireland's a separate island. It's a a different, different entity in a profound and important sense. You know, Ireland is a different island. But yes, Wales as well is there. But I think even more profound is the separation between north and south. The Romans would have preferred it if they could have claimed the whole of Britannia, the whole of the island. But as we discussed around Hadrian's Wall and, and other places, they never did. But ultimately, it was it was not economically viable. Too expensive to garrison men up there in a place where the, the natural resources were actually quite poor. So it, on the balance sheet, it just didn't make sense to keep the place under control and and administered wasn't worth it. So the Romans just drew a line at Hadrian's Wall and and, and pretty much wrote off the the territory that they called Caledonia. But subsequently, a a powerful king you can imagine, would have just wanted to claim the whole island as one unified kingdom. But it didn't happen. And that, that fact... That we all take for granted somehow was set in stone by the events at Brunnenburg Okay, so at the time, there was a powerful Anglo Saxon king who had laid claim to what we would call England. Now, he was called Athelstan, and he was the grandson of Alfred the Great. And significantly, He had driven the Vikings out of Northumbria, one of the kingdoms of of the old Anglo-Saxon, Heptarchy. And at that time, it was the last territory that had remained stubbornly under the control of the Scandinavians. And so by claiming, by taking control of that last pocket of territory, Northumbria, Athelstan created the landmass or or the territory on the map that we would know as England, it began to crystallise in its permanent form at that point on account of Athelstan. And even more significant, I suppose, in terms of thinking about someone trying to be the king of the whole place, he had won a, a, a vow, an oath of submission from the king in the north. Okay, Now, the king in the north was called Constantine, Constantine II. And he was king of what was beginning to be called in the 10th century Alba A-L-B-A it was the kingdom of Alba people living there probably didn't know that's what their country was called but learned monks in their scriptoria you know writing histories and writing chronicles they were beginning to refer to that territory as Alba and that's a word that's very important to a lot of Scottish people to this day it's the way that the, the Gaelic Contingent of Scotland Think of Scotland They think about it as Alba Rather than or as well as Scotland So Constantine was the king in the north The time when Gales and Picts and others had been fighting Had been at each other's throats Was largely over Gael and Pict had come together As one unified entity which was Alba, from about 900 AD onwards. And Constantine II was its king. He was the top dog. But nonetheless, he had been dominated by, he was under the the heel of Athelstan, the king in the south. Athelstan had threatened him, backed him into it, and said, you have to acknowledge me as your overlord because I am stronger and I come from a more powerful country. And Constantine had accepted that. So although he was the king of of Alba He was on the leash Effectively Of the king in the south And it it bothered him As you can imagine it would (laughs) Um, It's probably worth explaining at this point That Alba becomes known as Scotland Eventually Scott Scotty Is an Irish name Probably It probably refers to a tribe The Scots or the Scotty tribe who had who had come in and made their presence felt. But, but it's, it's also a word that etymologically relates to an old word for the, the sail of a ship so that the people of Alaba might have referred to these people on account of them turning up all the time as seaborne pirates, raiders. You know, oh no, over there on the horizon I see Scotty sails of ships that were coming. And so one way or another those people that, that, that began coming from Ireland and began settling in that northern part of the, of the British Isles. They were the Scots. And so Alaba eventually becomes Scotland, the land of the Scots.
1: When did that happen?
0: It, it's hard to say. The oldest reference that we have to the place as a unified kingdom calls it Alba in the year 900. And subsequent to that the name Scotland just starts to creep in. It's hard to say with any certainty when that name became the, the predominant one. And as I say, t- to this day, the Gaelic speakers t- talk of and think about Alba as well. It means just as much to them as, a, as, a, as an identifier, as, as Scotland does. So to put your finger on exactly when Alba became Scotland is hard. Now, Constantine, as the king in the north men around him, and probably his own sense of pride and self-worth, it bothered him that he was under the heel of the king in the south, Athelstan. So he defied his oath, and he went into a league of mutual support with two other powerful men. You, You might even call them kings. Specifically, Owain, who was king of the Britons in Strathclyde, it's, it's, these territories are a, are a, are a hodgepodge of, of identities, people understanding themselves in all sorts of different ways. I mean, it, it almost has echoes of, of identity politics of today. You know d- Different people identified and put themselves in different groups. and around Strathclyde, around sort of Glasgow in the West, that was the, the kingdom of the Britons, people who, who felt that they were the continuation of what had existed under the Romans and even older, the older Pratain, which was the, the original word for the Long Island, no one can get their head around it. If you're confused then you might well be, because it was a confusing time. So Constantine was the, was the king of that territory in the north that was identifying itself as Alba, but there was a portion of it that was Strathclyde, that was dominated by a king called Oain, who had his own sense of himself as, a, as an independent king. And then over in Ireland, there was a, a warrior or a king called Anlaf, and he was the king of Danish Vikings who had settled a territory in part of the island of Ireland. And likewise, he saw himself as an independent warlord with his own territory. So, in the run-up to the Battle of Brunanburh in 937, what's happened is that Constantine has sent word to these two other characters... Owain in Strathclyde and Anlaf in Ireland that they should take on Athelstan once and for all. He's a thorn in all of their sides. So Constantine suggests let's make war on him. So this Rainbow Alliance forms Constantine's Scots, Owain's Britons out of Strathclyde and they march south and they pick up Anlaf and his warriors, who land somewhere we think, in the west of the country because they've come from Ireland they cross the Irish Sea in their fabled longboats and they join up so there's now these three kings come together they each know that they can't, none of them can tackle Athelstan on their own but together they might so they've gathered together a host a horde uncounted thousands of fighting men and they're, they're moving south in the expectation of colliding with Athelstan Athelstan and his brother Edmund Know that this is That the game's afoot they, they know that this force is coming for them So they march north With their own huge army Who knows how many But a large force And somewhere They collide What unfolds Is the Battle of Brunanburh. And as we've already established, nobody knows where this event actually took place. But it was an extraordinarily violent encounter. Now, there's an old English poem, the most famous account. It features in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is a collection of of records about the past. And it was the most famous translation from the Old English was made by Alfred Lord Tennyson. You know, he of the charge of the Light Brigade and all of that. Well, he translated this old English poem And it's fantastic. It's fantastic if you like that sort of thing. It's unsparing, let's say, in its attention to the detail of all the violence that ensued. All the field with blood of the fighters flowed. There lay many a man marred by the javelin. Men of the Northland shot over shield. There was the Scotsman, weary of war. And it goes on and on, you know, verse after verse. Mighty the Mercian, Hard was his hand play, sparing not any, doomed to the death. Five young kings put asleep by the sword stroke. Seven strong earls of the army of Anlaf fell on the warfield, Numberless numbers. Numberless numbers. So the people that were witness to it and remembered it ever after had never seen anything like it. It was the stroke fest to end all stroke fests. Constantine, king in the north he came down brought his own son with him and his son whose whose name we no longer have we don't know the name of constantine's son he died on the battlefield and there's some belief that constantine's heart was broken at brunnenberg with the loss of his son and in any event just 6 years after the battle at brunnenberg he stepped away from the throne which was an unprecedented act nobody made him do it he didn't die He wasn't usurped, he wasn't defeated in battle by anyone But six years after Brunanborough He just walked away from the throne And he lived the life of a hermit In a cave Somewhere near St Andrews on the east coast of Scotland That's how he lived out his days And there's there's some suspicion That it was on account of his heart having been broken With the loss of his son And so many others At the Battle of Brunanborough Slender warrant had he to be proud of leaving his son too, lost in the carnage, mangled to morsels, a youngster in war. And it's one of those events that the violence of it seems to overtake everybody. They fight all day until, according to the poem, the the grass and the ground under their feet is slippery with gore. Blood and entrails of the butchered, slaughtered men. They're sliding about in this horrendous mire made of... Men's meat and blood and organs, you know, they're slithering about in the mess of it. You know, no one has ever seen anything like it. Many a carcass they left to be carrying, many a livid one, many a sallow skin left for the white-tailed eagle to tear it. Never had huge or slaughter of heroes slain by the sword edge. So you'd think about it in terms of, we think about battles like the Psalm, the first day of the Psalm or Passchendaele or some of the charnel houses of the First World War that we were so, or that our recent ancestors were so appalled by that mechanised slaughter of millions that meant that something new had had come. With the advent of the Great War of 1914 to 1918, people were made to realise that the world had changed forever. You know, no one had seen anything like that men being mown down by machine guns and blown into pink mist by by shells exploding around them. Well, likewise, it would appear that at Brunenborough 937, the scale of it and the violence of it appalled everyone. And they remembered it ever after.
1: Is there a front-runner for where it took place?
0: In this instance, that is the $64,000 question in the modern era relatively recently in terms of trying to pin it down try and find where it happened uh, there's been a light turned on, on the settlement of Bromborough, which is on the Wirral peninsula so the Wirral peninsula is the mersey you know a lot of the a lot of the expensive footballers <laughs> living live around there it's that it's that kind of it's that neck of the woods and that would make sense because for anlaf the king of the danish vikings coming across the irish sea he and they would have known about the River Mersey, the mouth of it, and it it was in the Viking way to, to penetrate inland by bringing your boats up a river. So they would have known. So when it came to making plans, you know, for Constantine and then Owen of the Britons, they could send word and say, we'll meet you at the Mersey. It would make sense as a location. So Brombra is the modern place name, but some of the early charters you know, if you look back in the in the county records in that part of the world, the earliest references to the place have it as Brunenborough. It's actually spelt, it's actually spelt Brunenborough. So, for those two reasons, its location, which would have been useful for Anne Laugh, who was bringing the third part of the Rainbow Coalition of Fighting Men, and the place name Evidence suggests that that terrible battle may have unfolded somewhere on the, on the banks of the Mersey, on the Wirral Peninsula. And relatively recently, there's been archaeological excavations that have turned up large amounts of metalwork, spearheads and the like, evidence of something having happened there. But it's difficult to date these things. And there were b- battles fought all over the place throughout history. But there's, there's quite a lot of circumstantial evidence. Wow. But what makes Brunanburh so fascinating to me and why there's a love letter to it, in this love letter to the British Isles, is because it seems that the events at Brunenborough mattered to everyone who heard them. Because people understood that something massive had happened there and then. It was this division of the Long Island of Britain into two unequal parts. A centre of gravity in the north and a separate centre of gravity in the south. People understood that if anyone, if there ever had been a time when the whole place might have been brought together under one king, then that time had passed. And this crystallisation had taken place in the aftermath of Brunnenburg And everyone sort of shrugged their shoulders and accepted that's not going to happen now. There will always be a Scotland And there will always be an England So whatever Athelstan's ambitions might have been Prior to that terrible day They were cut down Along with everything else at Brunnenburg And everyone withdrew The two sides with I mean no one really claimed victory at Brunanborough Athelstan may have had the upper hand Difficult to tell But they were Both armies were so terribly mauled That they withdrew from one another Like, like hurt animals just called it quits and withdrew and they went their separate ways and they just silently accepted this this matter is settled now. <laughs> there's, there's an entity in the north and there's an entity in the south and that sword stroke was made by Brunenborough. I mean, everyone's heard of 1066 and the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquest but arguably a much, much more significant event happened long before in 937 AD when those two armies came together and once and for all settled the matter of Britain for all time.
1: Wow, it's extraordinary that no-one claimed victory.
0: Athelstan did. You know, Athelstan claimed victory. He probably held the field, as they say. His army were probably the ones left standing on the field and the others withdrew physically. They were the ones who, who turned and left. But really, it, it, they had fought themselves to a standstill and each side was too badly hurt, had lost too many. It was a pyrrhic victory all round. Everyone had lost grievously in terms of the, of the numbers of, of the rank and file and the great and the good and, and even, the, even Constantine's own son were all felled. And people were just shocked and stopped, withdrew, and there it was. I mean, it wouldn't be the only battle to end in that way uh, without an outright obvious victor. Athelstan would claim it, but it wasn't enough to enable him to prosecute the campaign and push his way all the way up into into Scotland and, and settle the matter. They just withdrew and accepted that, right... That's it, that's it then. There always will be, there always will be an entity in the north and there always will be a separate entity in the south and they'll probably always fight.
1: It's astonishing that the repercussions can echo down through thousands of years. I mean, we still get it today, don't we?
0: Yeah, I mean, and in many ways it's forgotten. I mean, if you said to people... You know, what's the most significant event in, in British history? They'd be likely to say the Norman Conquest in 1066. If you stopped 100 people, I doubt if you'd get one person that would say the Battle of Brunenburg. In more recent times, that event and its significance has drifted away, but I would say it's why it's lost in terms of having no fixed geography. I think because everyone understood the magnitude of what had been settled by Brunenburg. Everyone wanted to imagine that it was theirs. I think lots of grandfathers telling their grandchildren about the battle would just have said, "And it happened just over there." It happened. It happened near us, and every grandfather in every corner of the land was doing the same, so that people forgot where Brunnenberg was, but for the longest time they remembered what had happened there and what it meant. And whether or not people can name-check Brunenborough and tell you the story of it, the fact of the matter is that the Long Island of Britain is divided in that way. So everyone's internalised it, accepted it, even if they don't understand when that line was drawn and why. But it was drawn in 937 at a place called Brunenborough.
1: a specific location where and how can a battle like this be remembered
0: I think the whole of the British Isles are the place and the memorial for Brunnenburg I think that's the the strange reality that Britain is the gravestone of Brunanborough the whole place there was a, a historian called Thucydides an Athenian from from Athens who wrote a, a Greek history during the 5th century BC there's a, a a great funeral oration was given by a great general called pericles and, Th- and thucydides recorded what, what pericles said at that funeral oration and pericles points out so eloquently you know for the whole earth is the tomb of heroic men and their story is not graven only on stone over their clay but abides everywhere woven into the stuff of other men's lives. So the whole of Britain is the memorial for Brunenborough. And whether men and women are aware of it, the reality of its aftermath is woven through all of our lives. Stories not graven only on stone, over their clay, that doesn't matter. What matters is what's remembered because it's woven into the stuff of other men's lives. So, as occupants, as inhabitants of the, of the Long Island of Britain, our reality is, is made by Brunanborough, whether we remember it or not. To
1: get to the heart of history, I know you personally love having a physical connection to it, going somewhere or holding an artefact. How do you do it for a battle like this?
0: It's a good question, Paul. Brunnenberg is just different. And to some extent... Brunenborough is Britain and Britain's Brunenborough because it has the form that it does because of what happened there so wherever you are in a sense if you know the story then it's GPS coordinates matter not at all read the poetry read the translation by Tennyson and that's, that's what brings Brunenborough to life that sense of devastation and that sense of something new having happened the like of which had never been seen before and whether the author of that poem knew it at the time there seemed to be an inkling perhaps that the tectonic plates had shifted something was different in the same way that everything was different after the First World War 1914 to 1918 nothing could ever be the same again nothing ever will be the same again because of what happened during those four years. Well, likewise, Brunenborough was the Great War of its day. And people knew, even if they couldn't articulate it and put it into words, there was a sense, after its having happened, that nothing would ever be the same again. Maybe they didn't know quite how or why, but they knew it. That's the memorial to Brunenborough everything was different and forever. A need to build, to find anchors in infinity, and connections to a greater power. Not long after the turn of the second millennium, a building was begun whose power and beauty has resonated across the centuries. A monument that gives us a telling snapshot of the energy and inspirations that drove our ancestors. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out Neil Oliver Love Letter, the podcast's Instagram account. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucien, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Allthorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen